Guys, thank you all for listening in to the G&JB show. Today I sit down and I chat with Mike Altamira, the MTK Global Consultant, Worldwide Boxing Encyclopedia, an all-around great guy. You'll love this one. Tune in, guys. Thank you very much. Hopefully we'll get a hold of Mike very shortly and we can join. Here he is. G'day, mate. How's things? Can you hear me? Yeah, got you, G. How are you? Good, I got you. T- I'm excellent, mate. Good to see you in this crazy world we're living in at the moment. How uh, have you been coping? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Um, I'm accustomed to being bunkered down at various <laughs> stages in my life and just needing yep. to focus on uh, different projects. So just making the most of the downtime. It's good not to be jet-lagged and to be fully recovered for once. You know, like... Mate, you... It's amazing how much the body feels refreshed. Mate, you've travelled so much over the last, what, last two years? Um, yeah. Some sort of, you'd be up with some sort of world record of flights, I'm sure. <laughs> there have been a lot of, lot of jet lag time. I, 2018, definitely. I did 111 flights in 2018. So Wow. Thing I think I'm going to stay stuck at like 13 this year. <laughs> so, so when you heard lockdown, you were pretty happy. <laughs> uh, for, for a week. For a week, and then it just becomes a, a little monotonous just because your life's accustomed to such a different pace. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not like in a, in a situation like guys like yourself where yep. you, you can make the most of the time at home and spend it with your kids or anything like that. I mean, so for, for me, it's like a, I'm always open to that adventure because I'm in a position in my life that... I, I can do that, you know. That, I don't have to yeah, that's that right. my life, at least just yet. So it's a, it's kind of an awkward transition. But the one thing I've been getting through is um, my VHS tape collection. So <laughs> Nice. <laughs> you, still have a, you still have a, a player, do you, a VHS player? Bro, give me a second. Give me a second, I'll show you. So <laughs> I need to see this. This is big time boxing from like 2005. So who are we watching there? Who's that just got out of the ring? This is where I got my listings. We're getting out of the ring. That would be uh, Shane Lockett against David Smith. Oh, That's Shane one. Lockett. Welterweights? No? No, like 126. That's oh, right. Okay. Yep. yep. That's finalizing. Yeah, and nice. Torrance going here. And... Um, so I'm, I'm getting through. I've got. I, I doubled my productivity by setting up two systems. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Well, Glenn Azar knows there. G'day, Glenn. Nice for you to tune in. Yeah, Featherweights, you remember? Thank you, Glenn, for confirming my my memory is not as bad as I thought it was. Oh, that's excellent, mate. Yeah. I, I want I want us to uh, touch. I want us to know, get to know a bit more of Mike, the person, and in your life growing up and. Um, I suppose what it was like. Obviously, you, you're you're from Victoria, um, and how you got into this crazy world of boxing, and then you do wrestling, and and you do many things. So, can you give us an insight on your early childhood and what how that was? Good question. Um, tough upbringing. My dad, my dad's pretty hard to um, pretty hard to get a, get along with, and that he's yep. from the 
that old school, very, very stern upbringing, very firm on you. Uh, so, and he, he's a former fighter. So he's a former fighter and he was training quite a few boxers when we were growing up. He traveled with the national team a few times. So traveled with the junior national team, was working with the Victorian state team back in the day. So when I was growing up in the sport, he was always in and around it still, especially, especially as a coach. And so I guess that kind of fixed the interest, like I've said to people, like the, the first boxer I heard of was a Sugar Ray Leonard or Muhammad Ali or say even, you think of 80 stalwarts, there's one right there behind me, Alexis Aguayo. Um, oh, yeah, great man. Prior or anyone like that, it was Graham Porky Brook, and that's because he was my brother's favorite fighter. So, you know, like I kind of grew up with Porky Brook and then Lester Ellis, who was my idol as well. And I guess that, that kind of just fixed the interest in the sport. But then also, my eldest brother was a huge pro wrestling fan. So that's where the attachment to professional wrestling comes in too. So essentially, it was like a, a combination. But the boxing, like you got to think, like back, back in the day, like videotapes in the mid to late 80s were 10 bucks. And you got to mm. think of times where people were earning. So... It's not, it's not like anyone had a deep collection. There's no YouTube, nothing like that. So you had to really go out and find fight content back in the day. And I remember it was probably about maybe 1992, 1993, where I started going out and being active myself, buying the Fist magazine, wanting to, like, then craving the information on the American fights. So... KO magazine, things like that. And um, just kind of that set things in motion. I remember maybe when I was about nine or 10, I think I was in grade four. So it was probably just because I was 10. So it was about nine. And for a project at school, I created my own wrestling and boxing magazine. So it was like half wrestling, half pro wrestling, half boxing. And just writing my own content, and I'm sure it was absolutely terrible. But <laughs> but you are a journalist as well, so yeah, it all yeah. come together at the same time, I, I suppose. So all of that work, early work paid off, right? In the end. yeah, <laughs> so yeah, right. That kind of created an interest, and then um, I think probably like boxing wise, what really really set it in motion where I was like, man, I want to work in this industry someday, was the George Foreman Michael Mora fight. So. That was in November 94. And I remember going to the pub with my brothers and my dad and essentially seeing a miracle happen before my eyes because there was no way on earth in my head that this, what was he, 45 years of age, right? This 45-year-old yep. at that stage in history should be pulling off an upset like that. And I remember when he landed that final one-two on Mora, just thinking, he ain't going to get back up. Like, and... It's just the, the, the beauty of the, the theatre of the unexpected. Yeah, that's right. The, and we've all had it go both ways. We've both had victories. Look, I had it with uh, PJ Doney, you know, victory against the green in Japan. And when you, when you shock the world, it's the best feeling. Yep. And I had Isaac Dogbe, a 12-to-1 favourite in Madison Square Garden, get upset. So I've been on both sides of the spectrum. But... I think that that's really what attracted my interest to the sport. And 
it just kind of grew from there. And it was, I've got to say, like on my side, it was very discouraged at home. Obviously, um, my mum didn't want me fighting or anything. Yeah. And my eldest, my eldest brother had fought and, you know, that wasn't something that she was particularly excited about. So I stayed in the gym and stayed active with my dad. But I had to find different ways to work away into the sport. So I actually started with Ray Whitley's World of Boxing, if you remember that old journal newspaper. Yep, I do that. I started working for Ray when I was 11. So I was doing amateur boxing results. And that just kind of slowly grew into other interests. And then, yeah, when I, lo I launched my own website in 2000 and just stumbled into the management by accident. So, and I've been trying to escape since and I'm stuck here. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you'll never get out. You know too much. You'll always get those phone calls from everybody. Oh, do you know this guy, Mike? Mike but for people just listening, and if they don't know Mike, Mike is the absolute encyclopedia of boxing. There's not much you, you don't know about uh, fights or fighters from, well, from a lot of areas. I suppose you've stunned. But that's part of your job now, isn't it? You know, you, you've got to know the history. You've got to know everything about the game. Yeah, it used to be so much sharper, though, when I had more time available, it was less jet lagged. So I feel like in this lockdown period now that my knowledge is starting to come back a bit. Just because yeah, right. and, and you can you can sit and read and, and be more relaxed. You know, like I've got things here, I'll show you. Some of yep. the things here. Hopefully hopefully your viewers don't mind me taking them here, there and everywhere. But No, it's good. But like Here's like a, a pile of things I've got just here in the office to read, and then just various things. Like I got um, this is a book. Uh, hopefully, get a clear look at that journeyman. So oh yeah, journeyman Michael Murray. So things like that fascinate me. You know, like that's a guy who retired with a well, like a sub five hundred record, but wow, his story's not told. You, you, you know, people don't know much about it. Then I've got Beasley, this is boxing illustrated from 1969. Um, I've got the, the Hagler Duran special. And wow. Other things like the, the Tyson Bruno program. So that's from the rematch. The rematch. Was that six round? Was that the rematch? The six round knockout, was it? Six, three yeah, rounds. Bruno, Bruno had the problems with his eyes. Yeah. He had retina problems around then, so he he went into the ring petrified. Um, oh, was it? Oh, geez, I'll tell you. That's the best one, man. Oh, wow. Yeah. Even even though you might never read those things, I've, I, just, I just looked at some magazines the other day, some old magazines. Even though you might never, ever read them again, you, you can never part with them. Like, you can't just put them in the bin. Bro, I've got, I got, I got like when people say they've got thousands, I literally got thousands. You know, like they're stocked up. So like part of what I've been doing in this time too is just listing and ordering them. Yeah. So that I know what I actually have in the collection, and then when I set everything up properly, I know okay, I can go to say Ko Magazine and find the copy I have, and then the, there's a little bit of um, a breakdown of what's in it. So. You know, like for each one of them, I'm listing, say if there's like 10 interesting articles in it, I've got each yep. of them listed. So then if I go into my document and say I click Mar Marvin Hagler, it'll bring up everything I've got in Hagler in the archives. Because most of these stories, you don't find them online. Like I was 
reading one of the old Boxing Illustrated magazines the other day from, I think it was like 1968, about a gentleman named Canto Robledo. Canto Robledo was a blind trainer. So he was a, he was, wow. he was a boxer in the 30s. And as, as you know, the fighters used to break their shoes in with resin back in those days. And there's a little bit of errant resin in the ring. It got into his, um, got into his eye and he wound up. Wow. What a story. So the article explains about how he stayed involved in the sport and how instinctively he knows off of the rhythm he's hearing of how the fighters hit in the bag or jump in a rope or whatever, how um, precisely they're undertaking the activity. So that's interesting. So I'd never heard of the guy being honest and, you know, you just always say, like, you immerse yourself with knowledge and you remain relevant in this game. You become empowered. So I've got to practice what I preach. So I'm always reading. That's right, yeah. So during this time, is that what you've been keeping yourself busy with? A lot of reading, a lot of, lot of knowledge. Obviously, nobody knows when next fights are coming up and that sort of stuff. Um, have, have, uh, you've just been soaking up knowledge, reading, that sort of stuff? That's all you can do. And you, you mm. try and plan a little bit for the future. We had a interesting conference call a few days ago with, um, with uh, some, of the, some of the core team at MTK. One second, is that on my side? There we are. I, don't, I don't know what I pressed there. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we had, um, had an interesting um, meeting with some of our core staff at MTK. Just kind of looking at how to plan and what to anticipate during these times, but it really is like a, a day by day proposition. You can essentially try and plan for events around, say, I think probably the earliest you're looking at mid to late July. And that's if everything ideally worked perfect, where, you know, in essence, the, the ban is lifted in a week, the next week or two, and then you can plan to do shows behind closed doors. So, what I'd say to all of the athletes, especially I know on your side, working with uh, Jack Bowen, we worked together with Jack Bowen and Taylor Robertson, two of our young rising stars. Um, That's it. Just stay in condition. I'm not saying stay ready because stay ready essentially is suggesting that you might get a call in two weeks. But maintain your base conditions so that if you have to go to camp and be ready in five to six weeks, you can turn it around. You know, don't yeah. feel like one of those fighters that does nothing in the downtime. And then when you come back, you've got no timing because I'm telling you, nobody's going to be given 12 to 14 weeks to fight coming out of COVID-19. That's right. After running, it's going to be who's ready, who's freshest, and who's prepared to take a little bit of a chance immediately. Yeah, 100%. Well, luckily, we, we booked in another event for November the 7th, and I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that I, I was thinking, oh, we could do another one in the middle of the year, but the way the world is, I'm, I'm glad that's the date we booked in rather than June, July, anything like that, you know? Yeah. This might be the first year in boxing history where the fighter of the year essentially has one fight and the prospect of yeah. the year has like two, maybe. Yeah, that's right. It's amazing. It's an, anomaly, it's an anomaly that we never see. I know that there's been downtime and serious, like similar periods in both world wars. But in terms of like our generation, this is totally unprecedented. If you mentioned boxing behind closed doors, 
Yeah, yeah. I get it. It sounds great. They're doing it in football. Football have massive TV money, and that's what's keeping them alive. Yeah. How do you think it works in boxing, or is it only those top promoters, or otherwise fighters are going to have to fight for free? Nobody wants to do that, but it's it's a everybody's got to balance out somewhere, don't they? It's a hard dichotomy to work out, but mm. I, I look at it that you're absolute, it goes both ways. Are you going to have your absolute elite fights without any gate revenue? It's going to be very, very tough because say a fight that might've generated four or $5 million at the gate without that revenue, you might be able to retain sponsorship, but who in their right mind is going to be prepared to, chance raising that money on pay-per-view on a platform like that especially right now when so many people are doing it tough financially and might not be prepared to pay you know in the u.s it's like 79 89 95 for a pay-per-view yep like that a lot of people but even if you look at subscriptions like there's been a lot of people unsubscribing from the zone and places like that and it's going to take a while for them to come back so the economy doesn't really stack up there the other thing is, I, I think TV, because they're clamoring for content, if you can beat other sports back, so if you can beat the NBA back, if you can beat, uh, say, Major League Baseball, if you beat the NFL back, then there's openings for TV content. But mm. in order for that to happen, there's got to be a budget for some decent fights. You can't be putting, say, six-round level fights internationally on, on on a network like ESPN or Fox Sports or that. So it's a it's a hard balance because as you know yourself, like especially at that mid to lower tier, most of the revenue is generated outside of TV. So that it kind of changes the whole dynamic, but at least a few people in the industry are going to be able to eat rather than nobody at all. So that's a positive. <laughs> That's right. And also, I've even thought like, okay, if they come back and we can do local shows, but then they still make you do social distancing of two metres or whatever it may be in different countries, is that one seat gets removed and you've got to sit like that. You know, anything like this could happen, which means that's going to be half the audience. So who's going to give a little bit when it comes to, you know, your journeyman that obviously, as we know, um, the journeymen and the, the guys that are there on a couple of weeks notice, they end up taking more money, but will that money be there now? You know, like it's, it's, it's tough. It's going to be tough for everybody coming back. And, and, and here's the other thing too. You've got, you got your guys that are accustomed to dictating how they do business because they're major league ticket sellers right now in, in this particular time in history, ticket sellers are irrelevant. It's what you can attract on TV. If you can't, attract anything on TV, then you better be prepared to get in there and fight. Nobody, nobody's going to care to pad your record from a TV perspective. That's right. That's right. Especially if that revenue's not there to create a top level elite, like you said, an elite level fight for everybody to tune in, you know, like if it's a lesser level, then exactly. It's just all got to balance. And that's going to be one of the tricky things coming back. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's been like a part of the discussions that we've been undertaking. The other yep. thing is just like looking at how we can structure things a little, a little better and things that we can control during these times. So 
say, for example, scouting the top tier amateurs, watching, watching footage, going back over people that we've been in discussion with and seeing whether we can either reapproach or re-enter talks with them. All of that's still relevant during these times, you know, like yeah. everything is frozen doesn't mean it's stopped, so to speak. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a mad time. I, I suppose everybody's just running on the spot at the moment, trying to, trying, to, trying to do things like we're looking at, okay, when can the gym reopen or even outdoor training? And we, we, we put in groups of 10 only. It's just everybody's world, whether the government have shut you down or not, everyone's got issues. And look, if we don't, if we don't adapt, we get left behind, don't we? Absolutely. Evolve or evaporate. That's, all That's right. It's 100 <laughs> Hundred percent. But it is, Mike. You, yep. It it is it is hard when you know so many good people in the industry and you see them doing the tough during these times. You know, it's mm. it is depressive sometimes when you go online and you see that. Yeah, that's right. It's it, mate. It's a tough one, Mike. You started your management career very young. How old were you when you started out? Seventeen. When you started managing. 17. 17. Who was your first Australian athlete slash boxer that you worked with? First Australian, gosh. Mm. My, my dad had a, a journeyman heavyweight. I helped him out with that kid a little bit, uh, Tommy Hammer. He was like three and seven. Yep. Um, so that, that would be, say, if you're looking at like the first, that would be the first. Yep. Um, the first fighters that actually started them, I had a kid, Ashley White, if you remember him. He was a... Ashley White, yeah. He was a semi-naming kickboxer. Yeah, I worked with him a couple of fights. Light, light welter. Um, you'd be a bit, a bit higher, welterweight. Welterweight. He fought, I had a guy, Graham Foley, and he fought him. He fought Graham... Actually, I think Glenn Azar actually boxed on that same show. It was one of uh, Brian yeah. Kerwin and Angela DiCarlo's shows. Against Johnny Perai, I think he boxed. Yeah, so I was... That's I work with Ashley for two fights, a win, yep. a win and a loss. Um, so he's like one of them. Uh, you remember, obviously, Keena Malpatina. Yep, so Keena, yep. In what, 2004, I think? And won the world title. title. Yeah, ended up ended up. Which world title did she win? The WBA. Wow. Yeah, so there was, there was like an era of boxing there, like Australian women's boxing. There was Keena... Uh, Sharon Anyos assisted the matchmaker. A few of her fights: Erin um, McGowan, uh, Diana Prazak. There's like basically just about every Australian female that had captured a world title. I'd work with them in some capacity. Mate, talking to Keena Malpatita, um, I remember her f very first amateur fight. I was actually asked to judge. It was amazing how much work she must have been a really, really hard worker and like a sponge to soak up knowledge because I, she was a surfer, wasn't she? She, yeah. she surfed. She's from Peru. Yeah. Am I right? Peru. Peru, came to Australia. I don't, I don't know how she came here, but she was a surfer. She played another sport. She was, she was really, really talented athlete. But yeah. Extremely, extremely erratic in, in mm. terms of temperament. Like, she could, if she had a bad sparring session or a bad day in the gym, it would just strain all of her confidence completely, where, where she would get really, really low and really down on herself. Uh, so it's amazing to see her end up turning it around and winning a world championship. 
Yeah. But I, I like like I said, I yeah, I remember what uh, judging her first fight. I remember she actually got disqualified for holding this girl in a headlock, and I, she might that might have been her only amateur fight. Actually, she might have only had one or two. Yeah, I think I think she had like two, something like that. Mm. And then went on to win a world title. Fortunately, by the time I worked with her, she understood the rules of boxing. <laughs> but, oh, but it was actually she was really talented. You know. Mm. It's just the way the way it goes in the in the sport sometimes. And like, I always look at it at various levels, from from fighters to managers, promoters, trainers, everything. I think the mistake a lot of people make is that they, for lack of a better expression, they they nail you to the cross on their first impression of you, or their or their first sight of where you're at. So. If they envision you as just, say, a, a junior matchmaker or a novice trainer, they leave you implanted in that role. They don't realize that people evolve and people grow. You 100%. Don't, you don't see anyone gauging Rafael Nadal by his first tennis tournament, you know, or, or, or Federer by his, um, his, his first crack at Wimbledon. Yet, yep. you see it constantly happening in life. Yeah, you're 100% on the money there. If people are to judge Bernard Hopkins by his first fight... Is that a perfect example? Which he lost. <laughs> yeah. How, how about Carino Garcia? He was 0-18 at the start of his career. And, and... Turning it around and being world-rated. Who else had a bad record? I, I, I don't think he lost his first one, but uh, the guy that beat Billy Dibb for the world title. What's his name? Tevin, Tevin Farmer. Tevin Farmer was, yeah, 7-4-1. and one. Yeah, see... Freddie Pendleton was 13-13-1 at one stage. It's just a message that you've just got to... If you believe in what you're doing, if you really have that passion for it, take your time, do it right, work every single day. And I, I say when I work with a lot of kids, like mentoring a lot of kids, I say, there's no secret to success. You just work harder than everyone else. And if you're not willing to do that, you don't really want it. That's, that's the way it is. Yeah, exactly right. I think that consi consistently, you know, like consistency is probably one of the greatest attributes of a champion in my in my eyes. You know, like I hear it, people always say to me all, all the all the time, all the time, like, oh, if that guy was disciplined, you know, if that guy was switched on, he could have been anything. Well, the he could have been anything is what comes from within, and it's the character from within that is a real championship quality. So. If someone doesn't possess that, then they weren't meant to be a champion. No matter how, just because someone's athletically gifted doesn't mean that they should be ordained with everything else, you know? Mate, to be honest, there's probably more guys with a better work ethic than actually gifted athletes that have actually made it to the top. Um, yeah. It's only every now and again we get a freakish superstar who's got the work ethic and that natural ability. Very, very frequently, like Michael Jordan, I suppose. Yeah, was, I was looking at saying the other day, seeing like, um, remember like late career, Jordan was a little bit injury prone at times. Yep. Kobe Bryant was, was the same, riddled with injuries his last few seasons. Mayweather needed a lot more time to recover in his later years. Even on a local level, Anthony, Anthony Mundine on a local level with his hips and every, all the injuries. Yeah. Oh, look, Mundine's a, a super freak of an athlete. 
really for, mm. for just for a guy at his age to turn over to boxing when he did with just a handful of amateur fights in, in was it in Numea, I think? Yeah. And to accomplish what he did on hard work and attrition, it's amazing. You know, like I think he's 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 very, very underrated and because he's held on too long. It kind of people people have wrongfully judged him by the worst stages of his career, which have been the last few years rather than the prime. Which you, you look at anyone's career, you should always gauge it by the prime. Yeah. Mate, he, he was an amazing athlete, like a, a great rugby league player. And I, I've heard that he could have – I don't know if he got offered by Sydney Kings, but he could have been a professional basketballer as well. Yeah, I remember I remember that time when it was after the Zvenoki fight where he was talking about crossing over to basketball. But he's, he's really, really talented. I remember mm. actually once it would have been – it was just before the Kessler fight. So a couple of months before the Kessler fight. He was in Perth at Craig Christian's gym. And Craig used to have this game he'd play on the wall outside, um, like like a handball game. So Craig's playing it every day. Chock had never played a day in his life and picked picked it up within probably 30 seconds. And, and beat just, him. <laughs> Craig, Craig just tipped him. But that, was, that was Craig's court, Craig's terrain. Yeah. Every, and, yeah, and uh, like talking to Chop that day, and he used to always he'd take his inspiration off of other top athletes. Uh, oh, we're back. We lost each other for a second there. You can't get rid of me that easy. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I was trying to look around. Uh, mate, yeah, mate, after all this. Do you know what really excites me about when I, when I speak to you and I see your passion about your wrestling? Mate, tell me about, you went from fan, mate, you've got all the figurines all over the world. Yeah. You, you, you love this game. How did you get into, go into promoting of wrestling? How did you, did you know wrestlers? Did you create them to make a show? How did all that format start out? Yeah, yeah. I just seen Grant Parker just joined. Hey, Grant, good to good to see you. This is a legend of Australian kickboxing. Actually, fought um, Vitaly Klitschko in kickboxing. Oh, really? Yeah, many many years ago, like I think 1992. Correct me if I'm wrong, Grant. But yeah, wow, incredible, excellent. Um, yeah. So look, I I was grew up around that scene at the same time. Yeah, working as a journalist on the boxing side, I was starting on the wrestling side and I, I used to always have a, a goal in my head. So I know that you, you're somewhat of a wrestling fan. So you would have grown up and seen pro wrestling, yep. Illustrated, the wrestling, yep. wrestling, all those magazines on the newsstand. So I always had this goal from when I was like nine, 10 years of age that I wanted to work for Bill after who Bill was a, he was a senior editor of those magazines but he also had a TV presence. And I, I remember always thinking like when I was coming through in that industry, just like in my mid-teens, so I was getting active as a journalist. So the internet's the best thing in the world because it gave everyone a platform. That's right. But is it gave everyone a platform. including. Let me just go on to this. Could you imagine this world COVID-19 lockdown without the internet? Holy shit. <laughs> Well, it would give the government more of an opportunity to control people, but yeah. 
but you know, in terms of you don't have your, your own soapbox or your own voice or your own outlet. But that... yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I remember just like setting setting those goals, and then in '99, Bill went from Pro Wrestling Illustrated to Well Magazine. And I was like, I was like, this is really cool because Well Magazine was one of the first publications that they used to publish the emails of the editor, the public, the email address of the writers. So I remember I was I was in year twelve at school, and I thought, you know, let me write a pitch to Bill. So I wrote a pitch, and I said to him, look, you know, I can go give you local coverage. I'll show you what I can do. So it was like the, um, I'd say like. A, it's probably around August because it was just before I turned 18 as well, like August of two, 2001. Mm. I get a I get an email back from Bill saying that he's going to give me a trial run in the magazine. And well, then got rebranded. It became Pal Magazine. And then Tell okay, yep. So basically, from when I was it came out on newsstands when I was 18. So from when I was 18 to 21, I worked under Bill for three years. So got to live my dream i was at um the wwe had a tour in melbourne the global warming show which was at um what's it called the, the Telstra dome what's it called now eddie had stadium oh yeah eddie had stadium yep like i think like fifty four thousand people there and i covered that show for the magazine and then it just got to a point when i was in my early like it was in my early 20s where it was either i was singing a go and work an internship at the WWE. So I go to Connecticut for a couple of years and, and chance my hand working as either a journalist or like a backstage writer for them and just see how far mm. I could take it or just commit 100% to the boxing journey. And just yep. boxing was just more firmly entrenched in my veins, so to speak. So that's the direction I went. But and it's... Then, um, in regards to promoting the show, so I was mm. always kind of around the local scene. So I know a lot of the local industry workers and that. And then I was like, you know what, if I don't do this, I'm going to regret it someday. So one of, one of my best friends, Benny, he twisted my arm to start operating regular shows. And compared to the boxing, it's very, very straightforward to operate. You know, you don't have the same overheads and you don't have the same element of risk. So... so I suppose what is the difference? I suppose like you, it's like you said. Well, you just hit it there, didn't you? you it's less overheads. I suppose that's what's that's the main stressful part about local boxing, especially without any TV revenue. I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So you're basically running at just a local level. So mm. you got it's hard, very hard, very little sponsorship. Mm. Some shows I might be able to generate five hundred to a thousand dollars in sponsors which is pretty good because say like a mid-tier wrestling show can budget at about anywhere from 4500 to about $6,500. So it's not that, that big a risk, but it's also like, like unlike boxing, you can't generate as much at the gate either. It's pretty mm. stable. You know, you get your couple of hundred people and that's about it. If you, you can chance your arm at a bigger show, but then that, that needs a lot more preparation, but I will do that yep. one day. So, yeah, right. Like I said, it's not it's not that stressful to operate, but you know yourself, just running any event, there's a lot of people you need together, which is kind of and, that's a tricky part. And you want to do it right. Whatever you do, you just want to do it right anyway, don't you? Yeah. 
Uh, what's that? Sorry, it's breaking up a little bit. Oh, just, just, just say, and whatever you do, whatever event you put on, you want to do it right. You want to do it correctly. So, you know, there's you always put the pressure on yourself. Oh, I always, always put too, too much pressure on myself, and I find that it can it can haunt you because you don't live in and you don't appreciate the moments or the events that you're staging. So I've tried to kind of relax that a little bit. Yeah, nice. Mate, I want to I want to go to a bit of a tough time in your life and still quite recent in uh, uh, the boxing world especially. Uh, if you don't mind me touching on Dwight Ritchie and your relationship with him. Unfortunately, Dwight lost his life last year in, a, in an incident that actually happened in sparring even yeah. though boxing wasn't the real relevant factor. The underlying cause, yeah, he had, he had. Yeah. Mate, so give us a bit of background on your history with Dwight and, you know, some of the good stories and that we can remember him by. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot with him. You know, I remember... Um, <laughs> I remember when, when I um, first met him. So it was at um, Keith Ellis' gym. Keith was training him at the time. And the late Keith Ellis is, is a great trainer and a really good man too. But Keith was training him at the time. And like Dwight, people were saying like recent years that Dwight had a bit of an edge. But when he first came from Shepparton, he was totally, you've got to keep in mind, this is a kid that would ride his horse every, around town. Like, so just, just on like a, a normal suburban street, he'd be riding his horse. So he just come, wow. from, just come from a totally different existence. And he had no filter. So um, I remember, I remember, I had, um, I was managing a kid called Fatai Nakeki at the time, which is a hard, limited guy, but a hard and tough guy. And um, the training in the same gym, and I'm watching Dwight train, and Dwight's like, Dwight wouldn't talk to anyone. He'd just like, he'd just stare at him, like stare holes in him. And go about his business and only really talk to Keith. But like the other fighters, he just gave them like a real look at this thing, if that makes sense. So anyway, one day he spars for Ty. And he's lighting up for Ty. Keep in mind, for Ty's like a former Commonwealth champion and Dwight's still an amateur. Lighting him up, turning around, hitting him with one, two, right? And, he, and, he, and he's calling him on. He's like, come on, mate, come on. Calling him on, calling him on, calling him on. And this kid was like 17 at this time. Maybe maybe not even, uh, but yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, he would have just been 17. So, lighten him up, and, but there was like stages in the sparring session where I was like, if this kid just used his toes and just used the surface of the ring more, he's got really, really underrated skills. Really, yeah. you know, got that real old school throwback indigenous style, just really fast yep. hands, good timing, good control distance, not a lot of power, but he could put them together really well. Was he a natural? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say he was a natural because yeah. the crazy part is, you know, Dwight essentially grew up without his father. Darcy Ritchie, who was uh, TV ringside prospect of the year, I think in like 1971 or 72. Mm. But his boxing style was a spitting image of his father. That's a bizarre thing. Like he, Yeah, he'd wow. Never, he'd never really but... watched his dad box, yet he mm. looked stylistically almost like an absolute mirror of him. Just Dwight's a better person. Um, you know, but anyway, so 
I remember going up to him after the session. I said to him, I said to him, mate, you're a beautiful boxer, but you don't need to stand and trade so much. And he just looks at me and goes, I'm a fucking fighter, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and that was the whole temperament. And then I remember I'm on, I'm, I'm, I'm there talking to Keith about some of the upcoming shows. And, you know, like I've got so much respect for Paul Briggs. So I was talking to Keith about, you know, maybe Paul Briggs' upcoming fight or whatever it was. And, and Dwight walks over, he goes, did you say Paul Briggs? I said, yeah, why? He goes, I think he's fucking overrated. I was like... <laughs> oh. I was like, at least with this kid, I know where I stand all the time. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and yep. like, the shame with him is, like, I've seen that that edge that he used to have, that it just about totally dissipated the last couple of years. And he become a lot more trusting where he understood the game and he started... He started to let people in. You know, he, he was he was starting to really show the man that he was and the man that he could become. And I feel like the good aspect is a lot of people saw that nationally with the profile pieces that ran leading into the Tim Zoo fight. Yeah. But, you know, he was only 27 years of age. So from a boxing perspective, you look at it and you think that, you know, he still had his prime years ahead of him. But more than that, from a life perspective, man, like the next, whatever, you know, say, say if, you know, you were to live to 80, basically 53 years and these kids are deprived of not having a father and that's heartbreaking. And that'll, that'll always be heartbreaking, you know. Hey, did you, I believe, I don't know what exactly what happened. Hopefully you can touch on it. He fought before his 18th birthday, had a few professional fights. And they yeah. got classes no contest later on. Yeah, that um, I was in the I was in the periphery of all that. You know, I wasn't uh, I wasn't hands on. Let's let's just say that um, you know, Keith Ellis took some creative license with his birth certificate and other pertinent documentation. But no, nobody nobody would have ever found out. But, you know, a couple of people with an agenda decided to start writing the boxing board and threatening that they were going to go public and go to Herald Sun and um, let other parties within the Victorian government know that a boxer had fought under their auspices underage. So that's what led to those four fights being no contest. But like Dwight always said, he knows he got in the ring and he knew he won. The Still experience part, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> The crazy part is, like, you look at those four fights and, like, he went to Sydney and knocked over Thomas Visakai. You know, yeah, so right. The big upset at the time because Visakai was getting touted as a decent prospect and it had beaten Yao Yima on, on the way up. So, at 17 years of age, like, you, you should get rewarded for beating guys like that at 17, not now to take it from you. Did, did he fight as an amateur at all or was he just, like, local gym yeah. sparring? Oh, look, uh, eight fights. Oh, did he? Is that all? Yeah, yeah. He, he styled it and suit the amateurs. He had like eight fights. He was like six and two. Um, I've got a few of his amateur fights on DVD, actually. I should put them, I should put them online one day. But that'd be, he, that'd be interesting to watch. Yeah, like uh, a lot of the stuff like that I've been finding in this downtime is like I found a couple of Zarafa's amateur fights from back in the day. 
Yeah, right. Whites, like it's just it's it's interesting. You just even guys like Blake Caparello, you go watch it. Yep. It's just so different, but you can see the early makings of what they're going to become. Hmm. This I, one of the things I say to the guys that are just turning professional, and they look at Anthony Joshua, Floyd Mayweather, and and they're always watching how they are now, how we see them now, yeah. uh, and I say you got to go back and watch their early fights, the one that no one cares about. That's how you've yeah. got to really see that they had flaws in their game. They had, they didn't fight at such a slower pace. They, like I watched an interview with Rio Ferdinand and Floyd Mayweather the other day. I don't know if you've seen it. I thought it was excellent. Um, he was talking about the difference between Pretty Boy Floyd and Money Mayweather. He said two different fighters, two different fighters. That was me, a young upstart trying to blaze everyone away, trying to do this. He said, but when I got older, I got smarter and I learned the game and how I control a fight rather than just going into and just working really fast. You know, I, too many people look at the Floyd Mayweather we see now, try to emulate that without doing all this groundwork on the way up. Yeah, and, and they put wrongful expectations on them because they're looking at what is essentially like a, a close to a finished product or the finished product rather than realising that, you know, they need to develop and add other layers to the game. Look at, best one is like, look at Pacquiao. Pacquiao, hmm. Pacquiao through to working with Freddie Roach initially as a, as a junior featherweight, had no right hand. A very, very, very right. underdeveloped hand. Like, he had no jab. He didn't Early really, days. Yeah, he didn't hook. He didn't really hook. He'd throw a winging hook, but he didn't have that real sharp rapid fire hook that he that we've been accustomed to seeing with Manny and that's what I was saying earlier that you know like you've got to look at everything in life as a process of evolving and just because a fighter you felt as an amateur wasn't what you know registered in your head as an elite fighter you've got to look at it and think that they can grow and they can develop you know, you watch so many of the star fighters as amateurs and maybe as an amateur, you're well with them and now you go back and watch the fights and you're like, man, they were pretty average, you know? Like, because, mm. But it's only you become accustomed to seeing, say, like you are saying, Floyd Mayweather, who he is now, or uh, yep. Joshua is now. Uh, even, you know, you drop it a slight degree in terms of, you know, because this guy learned his craft in the pros, but go watch Canelo against Jose Miguel Cotto. To what he is now. Go watch him then from there against Love Monadou to Victor Ortiz to all those fights. It's a completely different animal. The the pacing, the style, everything. I suppose that's one that's one bit of advice that I like to uh, hopefully you'd back me on this, like to give to the young young kids turning pro that um yeah exactly everybody wants to be at that top level, you've got so many steps to climb until you get there and take your time. There's no rush. You, if you manage right, you train every day to try and improve the things that your coach has told you, you'll eventually get to your high. Whatever your high might be different to somebody else's high. I get that too. Um, but one step at a time and you've got more chance of making it than rushing. Yeah, exactly. I feel like a lot of, a lot of, these, a lot of these kids coming through put too much pressure on themselves to succeed early rather than just learning their craft. And look, I, I understand it to a degree because most athletes these days, unless you sign to a major promoter out the gates, you, you've got to become a salesman too. 
you've got to go out, you've got to sell the tickets, there's pressure on you to, you know, to ensure it's a good contest. They see what other, they look at other people's social media and look at it with envy, not realizing that, you know, a lot of it's smoke and mirrors. That's you know, right. Someone, hey, look at my new glove sponsor, but it's a contra deal. That's you know, right. Yep. It's not, they, they might look like they're balling, but they're struggling more than you. But, you know, the, that first impression is, oh, wow, you know, like um, Box Raw is working with this guy or this company is working with this guy, not understanding the context of the deal. Yep. But I, I think that that's where it's on, like, it's on people like us to just to keep, yep. keep, keep the kids in check and offer them the right guidance, you know, to not, not, not add to the pressure that they're already feeling. And hopefully, hopefully they'll take that the guidance that of people have from you know people that have been there or had a bit more experience. I've always said to one of our boxers, Jack Bowen. I've always said because he he loved he loved Damien Hooper when he was a kid. He was like even though he was in the same gym as him, he was awestruck when he was young. But I said when Damien makes mistakes, I want you to learn from his mistakes so that you don't make the same mistakes. If you make mistakes, make ones that you haven't seen before. <laughs> and, then, and then learn from those ones. Absolutely. You know, and that's a, it's, that's a hard transition to make because sometimes when you, when you look at someone with envy when they're younger, you don't see all their flaws. Mm. You know, I've, been there, I've been there with Lester Ellis. You, know, yep. where you, kind of, you, you look at him as the, the guy who rose to a world title when he was 19. And, you know, but you also got to take lessons as out of all of the adversity that he faced in trying to handle success. And you can, you can learn from that, you know, but it's tough. It's tough because you still kind of, I don't know, when you, when you really look up to someone, you still leave them on that pedestal, even if they, even if they fall. And yeah. you, you don't, you don't want to see the fall or you don't want to acknowledge it. It's painful. And look, I suppose that as well, that can relate to boxers going on a bit too long. You always like somebody like Roy Jones, for example, you know, he's always the greatest. He's always great in my mind, but you know, his last 10 fights haven't been great. Have they? This was Roy last 20. Yeah. But... Roy last 20, probably. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But let, let, let me ask you this. Who looks at uh, Ray Robinson? or Willie Pep, or Benny Leonard, or Henry Armstrong, or any of the other greats, in the, even Ali, mm. and judges them by their post-prime run. You know, True. Like you, look at, you look at Robinson, Robinson was losing to guys the last three years of his career who were decent fighters, but that he would have annihilated three, four years earlier. But when he's 41 years of age, he's well over the hill. Roy was the same. I gauge, yep. I gauge Roy by the guy that ascended to, what was he, 49 and 1, um, going into the rematch with Tava. That's a guy, yep. that's a guy that I respect and, and I look at. Mm. You know, you've got to think, this is, this is a kid who had only, only lost a handful of times in the amateurs, gets shafted at the 88 Olympics, Oh, that was terrible. Oh, woeful. <laughs> and then the next time he gets beat 
is 16 years later, you got to look as a professional. Forget the fact he didn't he didn't get beat. He hardly lost a round for 16 years, and that's mm. where I, I remember back in that era. And the same happened with Pernell Whitaker. Pernell Whitaker, when he was an active fighter, then people were saying he's top five of all time. You don't hear that now. You know, Roy, when he was active, people were saying he's top ten of all time. Now you got you got these um, these people that jump online and maybe they heard Teddy Atlas or someone say some shit where people say, "Oh, Roy Jones is just a reflex fighter, and once his reflexes slowed down, his lack of technical prowess caught up with him." And yeah, well, you know what? You, you must have pretty good fucking reflexes to be on top of the game for ten years as a pound for pound elite. You know, hundred percent. So respect him on that rather than try and cut him down. Because I see people do that and they then compare Roy to James Tony or Bernard Hopkins and make this argument that they were better fundamentally than him, which maybe they were. But you can't deny Roy's greatness when he was on top. You've got to look at the guys he was dominating. You know, like no one dominated Reggie Johnson the way he dominated Reggie Johnson. You know, and yep. that just kind of gets forgotten in history because people kind of look at him those last 20 fights and judge the accomplishments from years earlier on that when they shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, What an an amazing athlete. Yeah, exactly. So, mate, who's... I I don't know if you've worked with these people or who's the biggest... Somebody that you thought is it? If you had worked with an athlete that you thought would this is the one, this is the one, and then totally just it didn't work out for them, or the other way around, or somebody that you thought, nah, this guy hasn't got much, and then he's come out and start at a, he's turned into a diamond at the end of it. Anybody that's totally flipped their lives around from how they started to how they finished. Um, I thought I thought Dog Bay would be a pound for pound top tier fighter just that's a, that's a, that's a lesson on not to handle success mm. of someone being overwhelmed by the spotlight or taking it for granted and you know as i say um what, 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 what's the saying hard work work hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work that's um, right you know you go up to 160 pounds in between fights when you're fighting at, at 122 and it's you're going to pay a price against other elite fighters. You won't pay a price for it against journeyman level fighters, but it'll catch up with you eventually. Look, that's one. That's a guy that won a world title and was successful. Yep. Defense, but I still look at him and I think you know he could have been a pound for pound talent, but he let his w- down. You know, and there's other underlying factors behind the scenes. No, no fault in the kid's courage when he gets into the, the ring because he's an absolute warrior, but. Mm. That that was one there. Um, the one that look, the one that surprised me, because I wrote him off on the way up, and then when I worked with him, I started to understand what made him successful. Was Billy the kid, Deb? I think. That, yeah, wow. Well. Mm. You know, Billy, even to this day, because he's still active, you won't find a more driven athlete. You know, and I see these young kids who are on the way up, and none of them have the kind of hunger or thirst or love for the industry that that kid has you know is he really really passionate is he 
Yeah, and it follows everything. It follows all the latest fights, all the latest news, looking to create opportunities for himself. And to do that when you've already had the layer of success that he's had in his life, it, it's mind-blowing. But it, it shows you why he'd become a champion. But he's won. Like, on the way up, I was always like, oh, this is just another overhyped Australian prospect. And then... When yeah, I and he was a bit leery, wasn't it? With, yeah, we thought he, th probably thought he was going to come unstuck with that style, but he got there, didn't he? It, exactly. But when, it, when I started working with him, I understood what kind of drove him, you know, what made him a great fighter. I think the, the one, one guy that fell short of his potential, but it's not his fault, was Lenny Zappa. Just, just the cuffs. Mm. Nothing, nothing, nothing you can do about it, you know. Like it just the, the guy would start shadow boxing and he'd be swelling. It's just what what can you do? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's 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 not a good trait to have as a fighter. Um, but you, when you were saying about Billy's passion and that he knows everything about the game and follows everything about the game, I see Michael Collins just joined us here. What an amazing fighter he is! Belfast finest son. I see he's been he's been training hard because. It was funny. Initial days of ISO, he was on an eating bender. He was making a cake every day. And now I see, I see he's got all this Bruce Lee talk in the gym. So I think that um, he's trying to work off 20 pounds of cake. I know. I know Nick enjoys a couple of snacks. Too, so uh, save some cake for me. Leave it to me. Send it to me. You can. You keep the training. I'll keep the cake. Okay, son? <laughs> Mate, when we were talking about we were just going back to um... – the passion of Billy Dibb. Um, I met Tyson Fury a few years ago uh, when I took Paddy Murphy over there for a fight. I, I took the same out of Tyson Fury. Just sat down. We had breakfast one day talking to him. His passion, he knew everything about any heavyweight in the world. Amateur boxers coming through. He knew about Alex Leopold. He knew about Lucas Brown. He knew about Solomon Hamono. These are guys that weren't even on his radar, but he was just so passionate and studied the game as you do, and as you said, like Billy Dib does. That passion, if you've got that passion, it's got to work for you one day. It, 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 it serves you well. And even, even if it doesn't serve you in that role, it would serve you in other ways of being able to, you know, some, some fighters might have that passion and they fall short of their goal as a fighter, but then they channel that into becoming a great commentator or a great trainer. It works into other attributes, but I feel like it always serves you well in life where mm. if you have that mindset, you're going to overachieve. And, yeah, and, and that's yeah. what, you see that lacking in a lot of, especially in this era, because people, people want instant gratification. You, you know yourself, like you're, you're one of our elite trainers in Australia, but you've been at this caper a long time. And I'm sure you get people all the time to come in and say, Gareth, I want to work as a trainer. And then, you know, three months later, they think they're just going to knock you off your perch and all the fighters are going to roll out with them. But it serves to have an apprenticeship in this game. It serves to put in the time and learn as an assistant and get your fundamentals right. Because learning any craft, you know, takes a body of work. It doesn't happen instantly. Happens all the time. All, all the time in gyms. And I suppose in, in any... Um, aspect of life as well. People, like you said, instant gratification. They want to leave school and be the CEO of a company. Well, guess what? You got some work to do before that happens. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. You know, but like I was saying earlier, you also don't want to be stuck in the role either. You That's know, right. I was, I was 
I was reading a a story yesterday about the woman who started started as a waitress at Applebee's and ascended to president of the country, applied to be uh, the company, sorry, applied to be CEO, and they overlooked her because they felt she didn't fit the position. She went to IHOP, become the the CEO of IHOP, and ended up acquiring Applebee's. So as a CEO, there you go. There you go. So, so that shows you, you put the time in. She worked all the way up from apprentice to head in the head in, to president. And when she got overlooked as a head of the company, she went to another company, reached a higher position, and bought that company. So that shows you what can happen if you put the work in. You can grow, but it's a process over 15, 20, 25 years. It doesn't happen overnight. That's right. And another thing that I like to say to guys as well about the losses along the way would eventually make you. Um, they, they, they sort of give you so much strength. Everybody looks at, you know, when we see on television, okay, Golovkin's amateur record, I'm, I don't even know it, but I'm just making it up. Three losses, 300 wins. Mayweather's very similar. And they talk about all the greats have got this. So young kids that have had 15 losses out of 30 fights, they think it's over then because that's all they're seeing. But to me, that's bullshit. The losses actually make you. Let me tell you something else. You mentioned a few guys. Lomachenko's only lost one amateur fight. Do you know how we know that? There's no other fights of surface that he lost. It's only that, that, that defeat to sell him over the world championships. But most of those amateur records are falsified. I know, I know because it comes to guys like myself and you sign someone and you're like, uh, all right, you know, what was, um, what was your amateur record? And I had about 100 fights. How many did you win? Maybe 70. And then you're like, Okay, so all of a sudden you put out a PR piece and he becomes 84 and, 84 and 16 as an amateur. And, <laughs> and people, people roll with that. You know, they, yep. they don't realize that there's so many of these kids. And that's what I'm saying to you. Like, like Vincent has said, yeah, Crawford lost his first two. And guess yep. what? Mikey Garcia lost twice to Crawford in the amateurs. Yeah. You know? Crawford lost to Jerry Belmontes twice. Who would... Who would look at that, right? And Jerry Belmonte is a very underrated talent, even though he's what, like maybe, I'm going to get his record wrong, but he ended up like maybe 23 and 10, 23 and 11. But he beat Will Tomlinson. He's a good, he's a good boxer on his night. But yeah, right. You, you you go and you go and look at um, you go and look at Crawford, and you look at the growth of you know he he lost to Belmonte twice. But when he turned over pro, no one was saying, oh, wow, Jerry Belmonte's beating twice, so he's going nowhere. You That's know? right. But after spending time in Cuba, I remember those guys, like, like over here, and I'm guessing England and Europe, a lot of places, everything's done so strict with the blue book of amateur boxing. Everything's written in. Those guys, they don't even care. Cuba, the yep. best boxing country in the world, or best amateur boxing, or most successful, mm -hmm. I'll say, amateur boxing country in the world, they didn't even give a fuck about this blue book thing. They just take it to international fights. They were, I remember them saying, oh, if we lose, if these kids lose today, they'll go and box at a club um, tomorrow. There's heaps of clubs that we can have fights at. And they have like in-club challenges to them, yeah. their fights, but they're not on the books. And they probably lose a hundred of those. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I always, 
I always thought we were ribbon though, because you know people run with that number. What, what did they say it was two hundred and seventy-two and four or something? Something like that, yeah. And if you realistically look at his record, it's about hundred and fifty and four. The mm. rest of the wins, who knows? There could be a hundred more. There could be twenty less than than what's suggested there. It's like you said because it's not really registered. There's no record keeping effectively of it, you know. Like like you said, if Vasily Lomachenko had had 350 amateur fights and only lost one, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can believe that. Well, he he's only lost one because there's no record of him losing any other. But <laughs> that's right. No one wants to know. I think. Uh, again, I'm with the minority. Mm. I think there's creative license with about 200 wins on his amateur record. I can't. I can't see it from the from the volume of how much he was fighting internationally in the seniors. I can't think that he was having twenty twenty five fights a year in the Ukraine before that and in between that to keep building those numbers. Yeah, that's right. It's just uh, it, and again, like the great PR thing, you know. Yeah. And like I said, what it what it actually does, these kids lose a few fights at 14 years old, 15 years old. They think, oh, I'm, I'm rubbish, but I'm not going to make it because Mayweather only lost three or whatever. You know, I'm like, no. Yeah, and then we've got to... It's become a record-conscious era. But I think if, that's you, right. if you look at the junior middleweight division, you've got to take a lot of stock out of that. You know, and that uh, Williams beat Hurd. And mm. then... You know, Williams just got robbed by Jason Rosario, who had lost an early career fight to Nicholson. And um, if you if you if you look at the kind of the dichotomy of how it works, if A beats B and B beats C, then none of it none of it makes sense. You know what I'm saying? But that's a yep. that's the way the sport is. You might have a bad night, or someone has a great night. You know, people people evolve from losses. They're, we, we we need to stop demonising a defeat. That's right. It's it's but it's any successful person when you talk yeah. to them and, and let let's take this away from boxing. They talk so much about the struggle that they've had to get there, and that's actually what's really made them have a strong heart, have thick skin, and go fuck this. I'm going to keep going. You know, like business people, whatever people have been successful. Everybody, every successful person's gone through a bit of hardship. Absolutely. Yeah, even even if it might not be, say, a loss on the record per se, mm. there's still a lot that they need to overcome, you know. But, yeah, That's I right. think that, uh, it, it, look, it's a, it's a hard era we're in, especially because of how things work with, with sponsorship and people building a following and everything, you know, and you Look, you, you, you see it all the time that um, someone someone wins a fight and they immediately will post about it on social media. But if they if they take a loss, it takes a few days to process because of, that's how devastating it is. And that's, yep. and, and that's not knocking anyone in that spot because like, I look mm. at emotionally how much it must take it out of them to acknowledge that because you've grown up in an era where you're told that perfect is Floyd Mayweather's record. Mm. And, yep. and to try something less than that. I'm not saying to have a loser's mentality, but if you do get beat, you shouldn't, you should, 
you might lose, but you should have remained defeated. I see a lot of these yeah. people, they, they lose or have a tough fight and they stay defeated because of the process of thinking. You know, we've got actually Muhammad Wasim with us now. Like, look at, like, Muhammad's one of the top top tier fighters that we represent. He fought. Yep. Um, another kid we represent, Marudi Matalani, for the world title. And it was a terrific fight. And the majority decision went Maruti's way. So Muhammad Wasim comes out of that fight eight and one. And if you're in this era where you're looking, oh, he's eight and one. He's eight, he was eight and one losing a majority decision, fighting an all-time great for the world title. Mm. So you can't tell me now that he's um, he's ten and one now, eleven. And one. He's ten and one. You can't tell me he's ten and one record is the same as a local ticket seller who's ten and one that's handpicked every opponent. And I, and I think that happens with Australians going to the next level too, or similar things like, oh, yeah, we've got to say I'm ready. And then sometimes we jump a little bit too high because we've got a similar record. Look at the opposition. And, <laughs> you know, it's a totally different level. It's a different development because here, boxing's a very, very small diaspora here, whereas there's, Say everyone talks about you know Mexico, but even you go, you go to other places, Japan, it's a proper industry in in places like that, you know. Whereas hmm. you know in Australia, it's a very very small community, so you don't have yep. the volume of sparring, you don't have the journeyman opponents to develop your fighters here. Hmm. Generally, generally, if someone's a, a journeyman here, they're just they're a part time fighter who's just cashing in. The, the, the journeymen here aren't comparable to a journeyman in the UK, like Willie Warburton, or um, who's who's, he, who's some of the other notable guys there. Like Warburton's always my favourite. Christian Lake uh, back today with three hundred fights. You know, um, Ibra Riaz. There's so many of them in the UK that you know, eight wins, 113 losses. Uh, Louis Van Poch, and, the, and the but they actually know how to fight. Yeah, and, and your young fighters learn their craft and develop, whereas here, someone's a journeyman if they're, if they're 1-14 and, and they've been knocked out 12 times because they're, they're a part-time junkie and they need their latest hit, so they just took a fight. That's 100%. The, that's the reality. How, how, could, how can that be managed? Um, it's just, I guess it comes to we just don't have the numbers. The, vol the volume's just not there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the volume is just not there. But I, I think it, part of it comes with firstly rewarding the fighters, like with those kind of fighters, and then putting them in the right kind of fights. So, you know, like you, if you look at it, and that's where we need to take it on ourselves as promoters. So you look at yep. a journeyman level fighter. I remember like one of the great journeymen in the region was Paz Vija. Actually, I, I turned. Oh yeah, I remember him. Yeah, yeah. He he had sixty fights in two and a half years, but he went like I think zero and six or zero and seven. His first seven and got knocked out five times, and then he learned the caper of how to survive, how to go rounds. But you need at least every ten fights, you need to throw a guy like that an opportunity that they can win. Hmm. You, you can't yep. match. You can't match him every time with a hotshot amateur turning professional. You've got to put them in fights where maybe they win around, maybe so that they're getting better and they're staying encouraged to remain in the last out in a round. It's five times in a row, they're gone.
Yeah, that's not that's not good for anybody, is it? We're going to have a very negative perception of the sport. So, I'm yeah, plugging my phone in for the battery. No, yeah. we're going to drop out, are we? No, 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 we're good. Oh no, we're good. But yeah, I think that that's how to change it. But also, we're we're in a country that there's now the numbers grown a bit, but there's under 120 registered fighters, and I think that I think that, that affects how the sport works here as well. Mm. It's yeah, it's uh, it's amazing when you talk to general public and say so and so is a professional boxer. They all of a sudden they think your guy must oh he's he's made it on he's on five hundred grand a year like like a footballer. Uh, well, unfortunately, anybody can turn professional. Uh, they've just got to be able to sell some tickets and they can you know they'll be wanted on a show. But exactly. it's just I, I think lack of television. Um, lack of media in boxing sort of all adds to that, doesn't it? That's why if the if the public don't know about it, then they can't turn up. Yeah, look, our fighters get some decent mainstream coverage, but it's mm. not consistent because of the lack of a mainstream TV platform. Because even, even yep. say, for example, and I know Fox Sports have been trying, but you'll see the guy profiled the week they're fighting but there's nothing in between. There's no follow-up. There's no regular boxing program to maintain the fans like there is, say, with rugby league or AFL. Where, yep. Imagine you you have the fight night on the on the Saturday, and there's there's a fallout in the discussion of the show on the Monday. There's no programming like that to keep it mm. relevant. So essentially, once that two two hour block of TV or three hour block of TV is done, there's no flow on from that until the next event which might be five months later that's right and it might actually be another athlete on that event somebody else yeah. so there's no like you said there's no uh, the, the guy it's not around and mm. and I know that it's it's you can sit back and just say oh we, we need to be profiled better but I think it shows that the sport isn't mainstream here unless you're an elite, elite talent. So unless you're mm. fighting for the world title. And, and people That's always what... like Mundine and Green and talk about their rivalry, but that was heavily built on two things. It was built on the back end of Mundine being our most high-profile crossover athlete and being very, very relevant in the media and rugby league. And also on Danny Green early days having Jeff Fennick as a mouthpiece. Mm. He had a lot of clout and sway in Australian media at the time. Mate, talking about Australian media and Jeff Fennick, I remember when Anthony Mundine, he was on Fox Sports or something, and Jeff and was it Ian McLeod walked yeah. in on the interview. Can you remember it? Yeah. And, and it's like they ambushed the interview, didn't they, and put it out yeah. to him. Who else was there? It was wasn't just Ian McLeod. Was it Nader? No, it wasn't Nader because they said they'd never fight, didn't they? At one stage, McLeod. Yeah, there was McLeod. Um, I'm trying to think who else early days. Bajero. Was it? Was it Bajero? They fought. They fought, didn't they, for the Australian title? Yeah, they oh, fought McLeod as well eventually. Yeah, yeah. Chuck actually, he might have. He fought McLeod before Bajero. I oh, did too. He did, like his third fight or something like that. Zoss, Tamify, Heath Stenton, McLeod, and then I'm trying to think. 
was it? And then was it Pajero after that? And then Pajero was about fourth or fifth, and then it went like people like Mike Mercado, those sort of guys, didn't it? I think. And then went, I think, was it Mercado, Masua, and then remember he fought in Canada, he fought Kevin Pompey in Canada. Oh, he did, and then there would have been like the Guy Waters and those guys. Yeah, yeah. That was yeah. before Zvenoki. So he had Darren Oba, was it Darren Oba, and then Guy Waters. Some of yeah. Geez, that punch that he hit Guy Waters with was a punch. That was a cracker. Yeah, I think that Guy got a little bit overconfident. Yeah. So Guy, Guy was one of those fighters that he was he was he was a real good classical boxer, but he's upright and yeah, kind of a perfect perfect foil for a fast-handed, fast-twitch athlete like Mundine at that time. Geez, Mundine could pop it. He had some pop in his punch at the time, in the, as a super middleweight. Bro, even like remember the the was it the right uppercut left hook against Rahilio Cacciatore? Like anyone walks into that, they're in trouble. You know, yeah. People forget how good a fighter he was, especially like that that first night with Danny Green against Eccles against Mikhail Kessler. People forget. And what he did to Sam Solomon? Where Sam Sam wasn't getting beat. Sam was nobody could hit Sam at that time. Yeah, he just he timed him. Beautiful timing. Three knockdowns, was it? First fight? Uh, the second fight. First fight was second. Yeah, second it was. Fight. That's why they fought again. That's right, yeah. Second fight, he dropped him heavy yep. around from memory and then finished him in the ninth. He dropped him, I think, twice in the ninth. But, for, like, anybody says Sam Solomon is the hardest person to spar because he moved his head, he was so awkward, and he was... He had his own style and it worked for Sam, but nobody could read it, could they? But then, you know, obviously for Chuck to time him at the time, it was, you know, will, like I you will, said, they forget how good he was. I will say this in Sam's defense, because I know mm. that fight was the start of his knee problems, the second fight. Oh, right, yep. Definitely getting time and, and, and getting knocked down didn't help it. But prior to him having knee problems, you could count on one hand how many times he got hit clean in boxing and kickboxing. Just incredible, incredible mover. So awkward. You know what? Sam Solomon adds to what we were just saying about before, how you just got to keep going. If you're passionate about something, he became IBF world title after losing to Anthony Mundine and having other losses in his career. He was 11 and 7 at the start of his career. He was IBF, wasn't it? Yeah. Felix Firm. If, if, you, if you've had... If you've had between 10 and 15 fights over here, you're looking to fight those 11 and 7 guys and you think you've got it pretty comfortably, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, but we're talking about a future world champion. <laughs> Sam Solomon rolls in. You know? I remember when he was, I think he was 15 and 7 when he beat Nader Hamden and Nader Hamden was 32 and 9. It just, it just shows you everything about records. Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Mate, so you're working with a few Australian athletes at the moment. Obviously, I don't know how many, a dozen or so. Is that right, about right? Yeah, thereabouts, yeah. yeah so, so obviously, obviously, was Rowan your last, I suppose, big for Obviously, Jack and Taylor fought their pro debuts. Rowan yeah, fought yeah. just before that. Did you have anybody else? Uh, Any other Aussies? Mateo Tapia. Oh, that's right, yeah. He, so okay, he, that's right. He fought he Dubai. Him. Junior in Dubai. Yeah, we had TJ Doney there. He yep. lost stock eight rounder. Looking to bring him back. He's probably the first cab off the rank. Mm. Once we've been 
once we can actually travel and fight out of COVID-19, because I think he deserves mm. a back. But yeah, TJ Doney, um, Billy Dibb, uh, Paul Fleming's still there, Luke Jackson, Nathaniel May. So, yeah, quite a few talents. I'm just trying to think who else I'm forgetting. Hopefully, they're not tuning in. <laughs> uh, Floyd has, Jack, Floyd has Jacko fought this year? No, no. He's, um, his last fight was August last year. He was actually gearing. He was supposed to fight just this weekend past. Right. So, what about the run he did? He's out of this world, that kid. He's, he's Fucking the, madness. <laughs> he's one of the few fighters that I need to call and always tell him just to find a balance and slow down. So he's the opposite of what you want in, in that respect, in that I just I want him to have some normality in his life because mm. the problem is when you thrash your body to the limit, you either get injured or you mentally burn out. But I know that Luke's one of those kids that drives off of having a motivation. Mm. But it, it concerns me, you know. It always, always concerns me because I'm just like, mileage on the odometer, you know. Yeah. It, it's insane what you what he accomplished with the running. But he's also, you know, he, he needs them legs for his future fights. So I don't want yeah. to see burn him, him out. Burn himself out, end up picking up an injury from pushing his body beyond its limits, you know. Yeah. He, um, ment mentally fascinating case study him because mm. what he's been able to achieve and accomplish in his life, it's it's amazing. You know, it's been all through hard work and attrition, so he knows no other way. Well, I, I think Jacko, when he went to the Com Games, I think he'd only had like 15 amateur fights or something. Yeah, and only been a couple of years out of being a reformed junkie. Yeah, right. Think, think about it like that, you know, but he's yeah. on the foundation in boxing and he's one of the smartest guys I work with in that he, he knows how to decode styles really well. And I think that back then he knew how to tuck up defensively and knew kind of how to utilize that style and that amateur system to beat guys that maybe people would look at and figure were more talented because it appeared they had more weapons. But Luke had the best weapon, which was between his head. He's a better thinker. Mm. Had the right selection of punches at the right time. You know, he's, he's someone that you'd tap as like an overachiever. But I think that that's incorrect as well, because although it's right in one breath, you, you shouldn't take away from his intelligence or his commitment. Mm. Yeah, right. Wow. Um, yeah. Sean Gibbons joining the chat. Oh, I see that. Mr. Viva himself, so Team Manny Pacquiao, Viva Senator. But yeah, Sean, um, Sean's incredible. He's one of, one of the best brains I've ever encountered in the sport and a really, really good-hearted person. Does a lot of good things for a lot of people around the world that just totally fly under the radar. Yeah. Uh, but I owe a lot in my boxing journey to Sean because he's helped to position fighters and create opportunities for us. Around and, and through, yeah, wow. He's a reason why guys like TJ Doney and Maruti Matalani and that secured an opportunity at a world title because he was hustling nonstop for us. Through, through you, I met Sean in China a couple of years ago, then. Yeah, like you said, a great hearted man. He had all the time in the world. No matter how busy he was, he, he, had, he had time for you if you 
wanted to chat and Mickey's brain. Uh, yeah, really good man. And it, and he he fought Mickey Rourke as well. <laughs> Did he? Yeah, they drew. <laughs> oh wow! I didn't know that. I've never seen the fight, but I'll go on record and declare that Sean was robbed. Uh, also, we got ninety-two U.S. Olympian Pepe Riley. It's a very very decent trainer as well, out of the wild card gym. So good to see. Just join us. Yeah, he's a good man, Pep, as well. So what's um, what's coming up? What do you? How do you see the future? You said you said you you see it behind closed doors, okay? It's going to be very hard for local fights to happen behind closed doors, like we've said, with the revenue and everything like that. If you can only have 300 people in a venue that normally holds 700, yeah. you know, it's going to be really hard for local guys to put on. Do you see any smaller shows going ahead or do you only see the top show? How do you see it coming back? Like, I think smaller shows can happen, but you've got to know how to how to piece together a concept and sell it. So I don't think you can be paying overs either. No, no. And, and this, this is an idea I was floating. So if someone steals it, I'm onto you. Uh, <laughs> like say with a lot of these fights that are being televised internet, they're going to be televised internationally. If you don't have a, a decent name, you've got to come up with a concept. So maybe you run an event, you have, Two, four, you have um, two, two tournaments. So you have two four-man tournaments on an event and you run them back to back. So you run those two and then you run the next week and you run another four-man tournament and then the winners of those two tournaments fight each other, say, six weeks later. So, hey, it's, it's not too dissimilar to what you did with the, was it the EFG, was it? EBC, yeah. You'd be close enough. <laughs> be for boxing. Be for boxing, Mike. <laughs> I was going with Fight Club. Uh, yeah, right. So, yeah. yeah, so not too dissimilar to that. I think if you run a concept like that, then that opens up that you could have like a, a handy eight-rounder as your main event and a couple six-round fights in between. So you've got, you know, say five fights each week. So or you could go seven, say two float. But you can keep the you can keep the expenses down, and if you can secure, say, you secure ten grand in sponsorship, and then internationally the TV money will be about twenty thousand. Mm. So thirty thousand dollars, if you can keep the overheads down, you can run that event. Mm. That that would be the way to run it. You're not going to make any money, but you're not going to lose either to be able to structure something like that. And at least you give something that's interesting for TV because the guys on the undercard might not be household names, but you're building something. You can profile them in between and then you build to the finals. Generally, those guys that aren't household names, they're actually quite exciting to watch over four-round fights. Well, well they, they, and it's, it's competitive. Yeah, you know? they'll have a crack. Oh, like I know domestically, there's a lot of fights we could do around, say, the welterweight even the, the super middleweight limit where there's guys that might be two and one or one and oh or whatever, but they're happy to take a chance. So I think that that's how you'd be able to operate that and make it functional. It's still going to, it's still going to be sterile because no real crowd or anything, you know? So 
there's things that you need you need to bring in different TV production values in order to build an atmosphere because mm. otherwise people aren't going to want to watch a cold product beyond a few installments. But I think that's how we can get over it in this time is by running events of that nature, at least at some outlet. Is it ideal? No. Is it what we're accustomed to? No. But at least it's given some outlet to keep the fighters active. And then what you do, like the fighters we have, like a, a Jack Bowen, a Taylor Robertson, you profile them on that. So you're, you're always building the future as well. Touching on profiling, we, you mentioned it before, the elite athletes that get, the elite fighters like your AJs, your Furies, that get media coverage all the time. There's only, let's be honest, there's only probably four or five in the world that are actually household names. How important do you believe for the athlete themselves it is to build their profile? Oh, it's everything. I, I, on a lower level, obviously, they, it's so important. It's, it's everything. I find, that, I find it fascinating. I think I've, I've told you well, this. Mike, we've only got 25 seconds left. I'll let you wrap it up, yep, with this. Yeah, I've told you this off camera before. Luke Jackson, a lot of people say to me, I want you to do for me what you've done for Luke's career. All of his profiling is himself. Is it? You're the CEO, you've got to think you're the CEO of the company, so you've got to build your brand, put yourself out there, and go from there. Excellent. 25 seconds. <laughs> we'll cut you up. We're in three seconds. Thank you very much.